I were to ask you to name for me the longest continuous war known to mankind, what, what war would you name? I think we're all aware of Jesus' words when he was asked about the last days. One of the clear signs, he said, would be the presence of both con continuous and active wars and the threat of impending ones to come. But when it comes to wars, I think we know some are longer, some are shorter. So back to my question, can you name the longest continuous war within the context of human history? Of course, if you know a little bit about history, then you know that there have been some awfully long wars between parties who would rather die than concede, whether concession might mean the loss of land or possessions, family or an ideology, maybe a way of life, maybe all of these. Uh, wars have a way of enduring months, years, decades, and sometimes more. Uh, the Mexican-Indian War, in which Spain colonized the indigenous peoples of Mexico, the Aztecans, began, remember this, 1519. It endured some 414 years. The war officially ended in 1901, but the, the conflicts did not really end until 1983, 414 years. That's a long war, yet not as long as the Ottoman Wars in Europe, also known as the Turkish Wars. Remember, these erupted in the 14th century. The Ottoman Turks swept the Balkans along with much of Central Europe, and and remember this, the Turks were an almost unstoppable force, not succumbing to defeat until 1918. That's, that's 500 years of fighting. Then we have the Roman-Persian Wars, wars actually prophesied by Daniel. These endured, are you ready for this? 681 years. And then there's Reconquista. Uh, this is a conflict that began in the year, this boggles my mind, 711 AD when North African Muslims captured the Iberian Peninsula uh, for the Visigoths. Uh, over a century later, Christian forces finally overcame the Muslims in the Battle of Las Nueces de la Tosa. It's a battle from which the Muslim forces could never recover. And the length of the battle, ready for this, 781 years. But is Reconquista the longest continuous war to ever occur in human history? I'm going to have to say no. So, what is? To discover the longest continuous war on planet Earth, it's my contention that you'll have to turn not to the annuals of history, but to the pages of his story, the Bible, specifically to the Revelation chapter 12. Here you will find recorded the longest continuous war on planet Earth. I want you to remember with me that what the Revelation describes is actually a war that began in heaven outside of time as we understand it. Lucifer, ironically the name means the one created to bear his light, turned toward darkness, setting himself against his creator and conspiring with what Revelation symbolically indicates are a third of the created angels. While, while I don't think we have really the capacity to comprehend with, with depth what the war between Lucifer and God looked like, it's always interesting to me that artists and poets over the ages have tried to capture its essence. Among them, remember John Milton, who through Anamanuses, Milton was blind at the time, wrote the epic poem Paradise Lost, 1667, illustrated by artist Gustave Doré. If you've never seen it, Doré's depiction of the war is striking, as are those of artists like Guido Rini and Peter Paul Rubens. 
cast down to earth, Satan, along with the fallen angels, we typically call them demons, have set themselves against those who are born into faith through the Spirit. Now, if it's been a while since you've read it, remember with me the words that John, under inspiration, writing what we call the book of Revelation, uses to describe the scene. Quote, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now listen to these next words carefully. Then the dragon, that's, that's the devil, became furious with the woman. Okay, so you could say symbolically Mary, at a, at a greater level, the church, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. End quote. Now that is what I would argue is the longest continuous war on planet Earth. It's not a war over land or wealth or ideologies. It's a war over one thing, the souls of human beings, period. Like it or not, this war is being waged right now, today, in your life and mine, which is what makes our topic today, I, I believe, such a relevant one. I want to start today's episode of God Size Living with a question. Here it is. As you engage in spiritual battle, and by the way, that's not optional. Warfare is a part of your life, whether you want it to be or not. So as you engage, what is your breaking point? When does the battle reach a point where you want to shout, it's too much, I, I can't handle anymore? When do you break? And I want to ask that question for two reasons today. Uh, first, first, I think some of you are there right now. I want to respectfully recognize this, that uh, for some of you, things aren't going well. You're not at your best. You wake up stressed. Uh, the, the one prayer on your lips, Lord, no more. I can't handle one more thing. If that's you, I'm glad you're listening today. Secondly, I, I want to recognize with you that that actually is our enemy's goal. He wants to break you. In fact, if I could use one word for it, the word would be despair. That's, that's where the enemy wants to take it's where he wants to lead me. He wants to lead us to that place where you break, where you give up on the promises of God, where your, your surrender is not to the will of God, but oppositely towards laying down the very things that are meant to hold you up in battle, your faith. I tell people this all the time. Do not mistake or make any mistake about it. Our enemy wants to break you. So let me ask you this. What do you do? when you feel it soul deep, when you're reaching a breaking point. Today, I want to explore that with you as we re-engage the story of Daniel chapter 8. Now, several years ago, I read a book that in some small way uh, really kind of came back to my mind as I started working on this podcast. I'm going to tell you this up front. This book is not one that I would recommend to you if you are in the least bit squeamish. It's actually a hard read yet very telling in its own right. The title of the book is, ready for this, The History of Torture. The History of Torture is written by Brian Ennis, 2017. So again, I want to say this up front. I think the older that I get, the heavier uh, 
my heart becomes over the insidious ways in which mankind misuses the power entrusted to them to destroy that which God created as holy, beautiful, and uniquely his own. When, when I read a book like Ennis's, it tears me up inside to think about the ways that people have harmed one another through torture. That, that's heavy for me. But I bring it up for a reason. It's goal. The goal of torture in every case is to take a person to what? To their breaking point. Either for the sake of making a point, i.e., you violate our laws or our way of life and we'll torture you, or to extract some desired data or information, i.e., we have ways of making you talk. That, that's the desired end of torture, to break you. Now, over the years, there, there have been, on a global scale, numerous torture techniques perfected by men, often with calloused hearts. The torture technique of keel hauling, if you're familiar with that term, it's depicted in the movie uh, or the television show Black Sails. Uh, it involves tying a person to a rope, throwing them under a ship, where they're dragged through water under the, the keel of a ship, scraping against razor-sharp barnacles. If that doesn't kill you, then you no doubt find yourself a broken person ready to talk. Then there's immurement. Are you familiar with the term immurement? This form of torture was perfected by the Mongols, and it doesn't sound good. Essentially, immurement is the technique of sealing a person, a subject, into either a coffin, a wall, or a structure alive. And the goal is actually to keep the person alive, but under the hands of a ticking clock. The person is aware that they're in deep trouble, but they can't do anything about it. They're stuck within the structure or the casket. This form of torture, by the way, is from time to time displayed on television when a person's buried in a casket alive with six feet of dirt on top of them. Uh, I looked this up. Should you ever find yourself a mirrored casket style, you have about five hours to get out of that casket before suffocation sets in. Not pretty. You talk about breaking someone. Then there are the numerous torture techniques implied, employed by people of the past. Uh, the Indians uh, tortured people with honey. Normally, I think of honey as something I want in my life. However, not, not if you're tied up and your body is dipped into honey to attract insects and animals. It's not a good thing. And the list of torture techniques goes on and on. Here's why Ennis's book came to my mind. Have you ever read the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees? They're not a part of the canon that forms the 66 books that make up the Protestant Bible. However, they are a part of the canon within the Roman Catholicism and the Greek Orthodox tradition. Now, here's what we all agree on. These books are, at minimum, useful toward understanding the period of time prophesied in Daniel 8, namely the time of Jewish persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes IV. In essence, the books outline the history of the Maccabees, Jewish leaders who led a revolt, a rebellion against the Jews, and against the Seleucid dynasty from 175 B.C. to 134 B.C. The effort was to regain cultural and religious independence from Antiochus IV Epiphanes after his desecration of the Jewish temple. Now, over the last several weeks, we've talked a little bit about persecution and its impact within Christianity. But what, what I want you to hear today is a little bit more granular. I want to, so to speak, get a little bit down into the weeds with you 
uh, let's answer the question, what, what did the persecution of Antiochus look like from a boots-on-the-ground perspective? And it's here that these two books, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, become helpful. When Daniel in chapter 8, verse 10, describes in prophetic terms Antiochus as one who would, quote, magnify himself against the armies of heaven, end quote, he's pointing us to this time in history, a time where by force Antiochus gained military control of the temple, the Jewish temple, forbidding participation in the mosaic rhythms of life under penalty of death. So make no mistake about this. It was Antiochus's intent to do what? To break the Jews. I want you to hear how bad things got. Talk about torturous. Listen to this historical account of Antiochus's torture as it's described in 1 Maccabees. I'm just going to read, quote, on the 15th day of Chislev, in the year 145, the king erected the abomination of desolation above the altar. Uh, what we believe is that Antiochus placed a statue of Zeus on the altar of the Jewish temple. I continue to read. Any books of the law, i.e. the Bible, that came to light were torn up and burned. So far, what we would call mental torture. Torture meant to break people. But there's more. Listen to this. Quote, women who had their children circumcised, so Jewish women, were put to death with their babies hung around their necks. That's First Maccabees 1, 54. Imagine the horror. You talk about torture. The Romans literally, and I apologize for the graphics nature of things here, but they literally cut, cut out the entrails of babies and used them to hang them around their mother's necks prior to executing the child's parents. All of it, all of what Antiochus did was meant to do one thing. It was his desire to break God's people, push them to their breaking point, a point at which they would simply give up, lay down, and surrender. What was the response of God's people? This is where I find Daniel's words helpful today. In his dream, as Daniel is seeing all of this unfold before him, actually hundreds of years before it will actually transpire, he, Daniel, cries out, even as God's people would in the time of Antiochus, with two words. Don't, don't miss them. The words are, chapter 8, verse 13, quote, how long, end quote. I want you to listen to uh, verses 13 and 14. And Lord, we just ask your guidance as we read these words. Here they are. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot, end quote. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state, end quote. So let me get personal with you for a minute. I want you to think about this with me. When is the last time that you found yourself speaking these two words? How long? When's the last time? When's the last time you were just pushed to your breaking point? Where you just wanted to cry out, it's too much. No more. What's your breaking point? You know, as a longtime pastor, I have to tell you that I, I've had a front row seat to so much of what people go through. 
things in life that aim to break us. They're not tor torture per se, but all of us will face a number of pretty torturous situations. Situations that the enemy wants to use to break us. For me, it's the man who was not only on a ventilator for three weeks fighting for his life in a battle with COVID, but who recovers only to face the lingering effects of long COVID coupled with mounting medical bills, his endless fights with insurance companies who refuse to pay for this drug, refuse to pay for hospital stay, who leave him saying, Pastor, please just tell God no more. I cannot handle anymore. You know what? He's at a breaking point. It's the team. It's the team that most people do not notice. They're quiet, easy to walk past. Who knows that every night they're cutting themselves, crying themselves to sleep. They've been so beaten up, so bullied within the sphere of social media that they've actually begun to believe the voices they hear on TikTok, voices telling them to kill themselves. They're at a breaking point. Does anyone notice? It's the wife whose husband's mental and physical health have deteriorated at what seems a premature age. Her friends all tell, tell her, you know what, we're going to pray for you. They don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day realities of taking care of someone who's become an adult child. They feel alone, exhausted, ready to give up. They're at their breaking point. How long, oh Lord? I think we'll all be there at one time or another, out of energy, out of strength, out of prayers, and dare I say it, maybe even out of hope. When was the last time you cried out? How long? I ask because the last time you cried out will probably not be your last time. So let me ask this, what do we do? What do you do when you get there, when you are at your breaking point? I want to close today by setting in front of us three questions that I hope might provoke a little bit of thought. I prefer questions because the one thing I've covenanted with myself to avoid as much as I can are cliche answers to difficult questions. Sometimes I think it's important to allow tough questions to be, well, tough questions, not ones that there's easy answers to. And I assure you that when you talk about breaking points in our lives, there are no easy answers. So questions three of them. Question one, what does it mean that God sometimes allows, and, and even more than that, sometimes causes breaking points in our life? What does it say about him? What does it mean to follow him? I, I want to ask because I believe that it's impossible to read Daniel 8 and not recognize the active hand of God in creating, not just allowing, but creating a breaking point for his people. If I'm right, then what does that mean for me? Question two, how do our misperceptions about how God acts in our lives contribute to moments of spiritual impatience or even anger towards God, the church, or other seemingly smug Christians? I can't tell you how many stories I've read about people who do walk away from their faith during breaking point moments in their lives. Too often, these stories reveal a significantly flawed understanding of how God works. Pointedly, Western theology is, to use a phrase coined by Christian Smith in his 2005 book, Soul Searching, moralistic therapeutic deism. That is, a Christianity that promises those who live moral lives, P.S., you define your own set of morals, 
will be granted blessed and happy lives by God, who or whatever you believe God to be. By the way, for more on this, I highly recommend Kenneth Creasy Dean's 2010 book, Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church. Dean notes, quote, that the problem in the West does not seem to be that churches are teaching young people badly, but they were doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what we really believe, namely that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and that the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. If you've not read her book, I, I recommend it. And then question number three. If there is one scriptural character that you've learned the most from relative to breaking points, who would it be and what lessons have you learned? I have to say that when I find myself at a breaking point, one of the first things that I try to do is to be reminded that his story, the Bible, is filled with people who've been there. Sometimes going back through stories is helpful towards interrogating my own feelings and behaviors. Well, that's it for this week, and I hope that this has been as much a blessing to you as it has for me. I always look forward to being with you and am committed to praying for you and your family. I'm thankful for your prayers in return. So until next time, my prayer for you is that you have a God-sized week. Mm-hmm.